we don't sit down and figure out what is the end destination that I actually want to get to? Where do I feel like this is good? I'd be good if I could be right here. This is where I want to be. We kind of think we know what that is, but we don't really process the whole thing. And because we don't, it's like getting in the car and instead of going to the grocery store, it's like you're playing bumper cars. You just circle. You have no idea where you're going, what you're doing, who you're knocking into. You have no clue. And we tend to be people with, as an entrepreneurial person, we tend to be people with lots of big ideas. We're visionaries and we like to go out and do big things. And if they're not serving the end destination that we want to get to, it's not the right thing for us to do. We can get lots of great ideas, but it doesn't mean that all of them are going to be the ones that really serve us. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and on today's show, we have Angela Kristen Taylor. Angela has a strong background in the real estate world. She is an active agent in Florida and has been coaching real estate agents for over 20 years. She's built a solid real estate virtual assistant company and eventually sold it. She is now a productivity coach to entrepreneurs, salespeople, and has a strong message around productivity rooted in emotion. She has some amazing insights today to share with us about how chaos becomes the new normal setting for people to revert to and how this ultimately affects our ability to be productive in business. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? So I'm actually allergic to dairy. (laughs) So I'm sure that's not your favorite answer, but not a big ice cream partaker. But I will tell you that I do love chocolate chip cookies. It is like my one weakness love chocolate chip cookies. Now I do make them dairy-free and (laughs) gluten-free, but they're my favorite. They're super healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. Healthy cookies. (laughs) Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I'm an integrative productivity coach and I work with self-employed entrepreneurial people, a lot of people in real estate, since that's the world that I come from. I work them through all the reasons why they're not doing the things that they say they should be doing to be successful. And we come out of that on the other end with them doing the things and feeling great about it and being really, really successful. I love it. Well, I can't wait to dig in there. But before we get there, tell our listeners, where'd your real estate journey begin? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I bought my first house when I was 19. I fixed it up and gosh, I love that. I want to do it again. Now, this is a long time ago. So this was back in the days of assume no qualify loans. And so you just like, they're like, how'd you buy a house when you're 19? You had no credit. I'm like, I didn't have to. It was so cool. Put it on a credit card. (laughs) Yeah. So you just like take cash, match the equity, and they just give you the house. It's like super easy. So I bought the first house when I was 19. I was like, that's super awesome. And then you know what it was? Was I watched this. Carlton Sheets infomercial in the middle of the night. And I was like, I could totally do that. And so I just called a real estate agent. I'm like, hey, this is the deal. I'm going to get an equity line of credit from the house I just bought, A&Q. And then I'm going to pull that money out and use it again and buy another house. So here's how much I'm going to have. 
you go find me a house that has that equity value or less, and I'm going to buy it. And I don't care what shape it's in. Now, I will tell you, I had to call like 10 different realtors and only one took me up on it. (laughs) Why is that? Well, I didn't know then. I will tell you now it falls into that. I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it realm for agents. And a lot of them don't respond to leads. So it's really interesting. It's totally a thing. So you bought one house, used the equity, bought another house. How big did you scale? I got to four houses by the time I was 22. So between 19 and 22, I bought four homes. And I was renting out three of them and managing those by myself with no experience doing this before. And it was so cool. It was like the best thing in the world. And I felt like, you know what it was is there was this thing and I'll go into this a little bit more with the whole emotion aspect of productivity, but there is this story that I had as a kid, right? This story that we keep internally in our subconscious, right? That was telling me, I have to do things the way everybody says I'm supposed to, right? And what I was supposed to be doing was enrolling in college. And I thought, I just don't feel like that. That's not what I feel like doing right now. So I thought, well, I'll just go do something else for a little while. And then when college feels like a fit, maybe I'll do it then. And in my mind, it was something I was still going to go do. And when I got bitten by the real estate bug, (laughs) started investing, I was so thrilled by it. And what I realized was that I could make up my own story and I didn't have to do things the way other people said. And that I could create anything I wanted as long as I could really believe in myself that I could make it happen, I could. So that's when I started veering off of the supposed to story and started going into creating my own. How did you find that out? Because I think that's something that a lot of people struggling with, especially myself. But how did you kind of come to that realization? The fact that I bought a house and I was 19, that I thought like nobody was doing that. And I didn't know anybody else. Nobody I went to high school with certainly was buying a house. And to be 22 and own four homes and have three rental properties. And I thought like a lot of grownups, because I didn't consider myself a grownup at that point. <laughs> like a lot of grownups don't have what I have. This is pretty awesome. And then I thought, well, what else can I do? That's when I got my real estate license and I started selling real estate. And I was like, I loved it. But I really liked being that person that the other realtors came to. And that was what shifted me again. But it really was just seeing what was possible and being willing to break the rules. Yeah. So you scaled it to four. You were managing it yourself. You decided to become a realtor. You just said something there about being the person that realtors come to. Why is that? Why were they coming to you? It was really a combination of things. So it was about maybe two years into it. I think it was about 24 And the Windows-based MLS came out. And it was the first time we had a Windows-based MLS. I mean, before that, it was all in DOS. There were no pictures. It was all coded. You know, you had to memorize all the codes. It was crazy. So it was like Windows, which meant people had to like know how to use a computer. And a lot of people didn't know how. And so the board had us all go in and take a class on how to use the system. And I was like, good, got it, no problem. And I went back to the office and the broker was like, Yeah. So we all took the class, but you're the only one who understood it. So can you teach it again here? And I was like, sure, why not? And then there were other things that were happening. Like there were agents who were saying, got this listing and it's just not moving. 
And I would overhear them talking to another experienced agent about this. And I would say, hey, why don't you do da, 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 da? And it was something really creative and off the wall. And they were like, we can do that. I'm like, I don't see why not. (laughs) They're like, that's a great idea. And then they would run with it and they would do it. And then they would sell the house was things like offering a bonus that wasn't just a bonus to agent. There are certain rules around things that we can and can't do in different states. And this was okay then. Things like having a six months of a housekeeping service to the buyer, (laughs) something like that. And they would sell the house. And this was Orlando, Florida, where all the homes are pretty much cookie cutter. So there could be five homes on a block. They all are identical. How do you sell yours, right? And so it was just getting really creative with the marketing and the offers and things like that. And they really liked that. So I started putting stuff together like that for the agents and they really, really enjoyed it. And so I was like, I really like this. I like this creative part. And then I started going to the conferences Florida Association of Realtors, National Association of Realtors, which is in Orlando, like every four years. And so I would go to those things and I would talk to all the vendors and I would get to know them. And the reason I did that was because it was like, I didn't want to pay the money for the classes. I didn't want to sit through the classes either because I was like, couldn't sit still that long. So I thought, well, I'll just walk around and talk to the vendors on the free day. (laughs) And so I did and I loved it. And I just got to know all these people and they were like all over the world. And then before I knew it, people were calling me and asking me questions like, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And the more I started working with realtors, this is how I got started doing my marketing business, which turned into kind of a virtual assistant business because I loved helping the realtors. Then I got pregnant with my first baby and I was like, what can I do? where I don't have to like go to an office and I don't have to like climb upstairs. I was eight months pregnant showing a house going, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And so started this marketing business. So I just literally got the phone book and called every office, every real estate office and said, Hey, you know, anybody needs any help with their marketing, their listings, anything like that. And then they patched me through to an agent. So I had like a couple of clients right off the bat that were local. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to their office doing everything over the phone and I'm doing it on my computer from home, I'm emailing them things. I could really do this for anybody anywhere. So I went to the number one experts.com. They probably are still out there, but it was a place where they would build real estate websites for agents. The kind with the big Palladian window with your face that said, enter here. (laughs) Very pretty ones. Yeah, very pretty ones. And they would have this directory of all the agents that had number one experts website. So I just clicked on every single one. And this is before we had spam laws. There were a lot of things we could do back then that we can't do today. I emailed every single agent that had a website with them. And this is back when we didn't have IDX. So all the listings had to be manually entered. You were only allowed to post your own listings to the website. I emailed them all. And within two weeks, I had 10 clients that were all over the country. And these were like really top agents in their field, in their local area, because they were the ones who had websites and most people didn't back then. So I just emailed them all, got 10 clients, and then just kept emailing till we got to the point of 40 clients. Some of those clients were brokerages. I ended up having to hire 10 other people to do all the work. And so we were writing listing copy, posting listings to websites, updating stuff, calling leads for them that they would have come in off their website. I mean, that sort of thing. And it went really, really well until I was just sitting on the phone 
doing what I called customer service, which was helping my agents through all their problems. And somebody was like, wow, this is so great. This is better than my coach. I'm like, coach, yeah, what's that? And they're like, what we just did here. I'm like, you pay somebody for that? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, thank you very much. And then I started researching. <laughs> and that was 20 years ago. I've been coaching ever since. So I want to get back to you emailing people. How did you assess whether you were effective or not? Did you say that, hey, I'm going to email these people 20 people at a time and redefine my script? Were you emailing them every other day? Like, how did you kind of refine that process as you grew? To be honest, I didn't think too hard about it. I wrote up one email. I sent it to as many people as I could stand to do in one day. Angela. And then I just kept doing it until I got through all of them. And it took me two weeks. And 10 people responded, yes. <laughs> I think that's what's interesting about like virtual sales, specifically as we're in this interconnected Zoom world today, is it's really just a numbers game. Maybe you talk about this in your coaching. As long as you're not going to get your feelings hurt from a no, you can keep going to the next person and that's going to get you closer to a yes. Even when I was in real estate sales, right? And back then they didn't have training programs and they didn't have a lot of coaching and things like that back then. So for me, when I first got my real estate license and I went to my broker and I said, so if I get a buyer that wants to like buy a house, what do I do? And he literally did not look up off of his desk. He just pointed across the room to his file cabinet. And he said, take one out of there and copy it. And I was like, okay. And so I just sat there all afternoon going through contracts and studying them and learning them. And when it came down to it, I figured it out. That's what we did. That's what training was apparently back then. So I didn't mind calling people. And I would call people that were for sale by owners, expired listings, things like that. And I got a lot of people that would get angry and hang up. And I just thought, I just have fun with this. I don't have anything to lose. So they'd hang up on me and I'd call them back. I'm like, I'm so sorry. We must've gotten disconnected. And they're like, no, I hung up on you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you having a bad day? What's wrong? I, I'm so sorry. And they're like, these stupid realtors keep calling me and you're just another realtor. I'm like, well, let's talk about this a little bit. And then they'd actually open up and like pour their hearts out to me. And it was funny because I remember I would just took a very non-aggressive approach to it. And I was just like, listen, I'm here to help you. If I can answer some questions for you, if I can help you out, maybe I can give you some advice. I'm happy to do it. And I would do that over the phone. And then it would be calling them back. And I say, hey, you want me to stop by? How's your open house going? Let me stop by. I'll take a look. I'll see if I can think of anything that might help you get it sold faster. And then it was, here, let me drop off some paperwork for you. Here's some blank contracts. This way, if you need any help, you have any questions, let me know. If you get a buyer, great. Here you go. This is how you do it. And then when they needed to list it because they were so tired of it and it was going nowhere, they called me. So it was just being nice. And that was it. And most successful salespeople really are servant leaders, I think. And they're just trying to solve problems. And we've had a couple of wholesalers on the phone, on the podcast before. And one of the things that I always try to say about wholesaling is all you're trying to do is find people with problems and help them solve their problems. That's all. A hundred percent. One of the things through my research of you, I've learned is your four elements of productivity. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I will tell you that this came from a space of going to conferences, sitting at the bar and waiting for an agent to sit next to me and then turning around and saying, I bet when you were a kid, you scored off the charts on all your standardized tests, but you didn't do your homework or much of your schoolwork 
and your teacher said, why don't you just apply yourself? And they would sit there and their jaw would drop and they'd say, oh my God, how do you know that about me? And I'd say, well, you're just like me. I did the same thing. And actually it's like almost all of the agents I've ever met are exactly the same way. And they're like, you're kidding. And this was like this big secret that nobody knew. And we were all like that, like all of us. And so I started digging deeper into that. And I realized that there is this thing that happened in our childhood. I used to think it was that we were all abused in some way. And it wasn't necessarily that. We could have really well-intentioned parents that didn't know what to do with the way our brains work. And so we have these entrepreneurial minds and we've always had them. So we're people who we think a little differently. We behave a little differently. We like to break the rules. (laughs) We're willing to do it. I find that a lot of us have had similar upbringings. And so what it's done is it creates this desire to go out and be free, to not have anybody saying, you have to behave this way. You have to do things this way. You have to get this job and earn this amount of money to be happy. And we're like, no, all I need to be happy is just to be free. And because of that, what's happened is we go into this space of being self-employed, of being an entrepreneur. And a lot of us go into real estate because it's a really great way to make money. And it doesn't matter if you're an agent, you're an investor or whatever, we're in real estate. That's what we do, right? And so what happens then is that this need to be free that comes from this childhood story of what we grew up with, what we were told, it also stems into this space of wanting to lead with a servant's heart. Like we really truly want to solve problems and help people. Then at the same time, there's this thing inside of us that says, well, if we offer it, maybe they don't want it. And maybe I'm not good enough to give it to them. And I don't know if I can really help them. I want to help them. I think I can help them. Am I good enough to help them? And then we kind of run through this like emotional roller coaster. So this is basically what happens. And so it's like we have all this chaos that's just rolling around inside of us all the time. And we have this desire to do this big thing and we're doing it, but then we stop ourselves from doing it. And then we do it and then we stop ourselves and then we do it and then we stop ourselves again. And so my four elements are emotion, energy, time, and focus. And what I realized was that all of our productivity, our ability to be motivated, stay motivated, to get up, to go do things every day, is rooted in how we feel in any given moment. What we choose to do on the outside is going to be based on how we feel on the inside. And if we're all chaos on the inside, we don't make the right choices with our time. And so that's why I always say it's productivity is rooted in emotion, but we start with focus and we work our way backwards. As you were kind of telling the story, I was thinking in my head that like all kids want to be free, but it's our job as parents to put boundaries on where they can be free. I caught myself thinking that. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's kind of like me. I just want my time freedom back. I need guidelines and boundaries to go be successful as an entrepreneur or an investor or whatever. So how do you help people create those boundaries internally? It's not so much helping people create boundaries so much as figuring out what boundaries do they need and do they want. And we do something that I always start with called setting your GPS. It's like when we get in the car, 
the first thing we do is plug in the phone and do our GPS. We set it, whatever our destination is. It doesn't matter if you're going to the grocery store down the street and you know how to go there. You want to make sure there's no cops, there's no traffic accident. Like you want to make sure you've got the fastest, most direct route there, right? And the thing is, is we do that in our cars to get anywhere, even if we know where we're going, but we don't do it in our lives. We don't sit down and figure out what is the end destination that I actually want to get to? Where do I feel like this is good? I'd be good if I could be right here. This is where I want to be. We kind of think we know what that is, but we don't really process the whole thing. And because we don't, it's like getting in the car and instead of going to the grocery store, it's like you're playing bumper cars. You just circle. You have no idea where you're going, what you're doing, or who you're knocking into. You have no clue. And we tend to be people with, as an entrepreneurial person, we tend to be people with lots of big ideas. We're visionaries and we like to go out and do big things. And if they're not serving the end destination that we want to get to, it's not the right thing for us to do. We can get lots of great ideas, but it doesn't mean that all of them are going to be the ones that really serve us, that are really putting us into a space of like, yes, this is what I want. Because sometimes the things sound good, but they take us to a place where we don't want to be. Yeah. I'm going to steal one of your best practices of when you were going around in conferences and talking with people because you didn't want to take the class and ask you, like, this is one of the things I struggle with, but also understand the value tremendously. So one of the things I talk about is clarity. You have to know where you're going or any road will get you there. And more specifically, that if you start going down a path and you make a decision, it limits your options in the future on the decisions that you can make. So this idea of setting an internal GPS is really appealing to me. How would I go through setting my internal GPS? What kind of exercises, what kind of questions could I be asking myself to help get clarity on that? Yeah. So what I do is I've actually got certified as a meditation trainer. So I take people through basically like a meditation visioning where we go into a future time period and we're looking at what does life look like in this future time period? And it is designed to where I'm setting it up for them so that it's your ideal day and just take them through walking through a day in that life. What is that ideal day? And what happens is stuff comes out in that without them thinking about it, without them planning. It just pops up and they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea I would be doing that. That's interesting. Me doing that on myself was how I got myself into a three-day work week because I was like, in my ideal day, I was only working from nine to two and only on Tuesday through Thursday. Then I thought, huh, why am I not doing that now? (laughs) And so I did it. I just rearranged my schedule and made it happen. That's where I was going next. So when you get people to understand what their ideal day is, it might be years in advance. How do they bring that and make an actionable thing today to help them start getting towards that path? Yeah. So it's really looking at it and say, what parts of this can I implement now and do those first? And then whatever's left, break it down into how do I get there? Like create a path for yourself and start to create those stepping stones because it's easier to backtrack something, right? Than it is to forward track something. So if you're taking it, that's why it's like, everybody's like, well, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do that. It's like, do you know where you're going? Because they don't. If you start at the end and then work yourself backwards, it's easier to build. It's easier to figure out what direction you need to go. 
I've never heard it said that way, but that makes so much sense when you're saying that because I think about the things that I'm trying to accomplish in my life. So I'm an Ironman athlete. You're in Louisville today, which is a very long distance triathlon. And I always think, okay, well, there's this race that's nine months out. What do I need to do before that race? Well, this week I need to be here. The month before I need to be there, the three months, et cetera, et cetera. You work with a lot of clients. What are some of the like pitfalls that you see after you have this session that they revert themselves back to chaos and don't make the momentum? Like what stops them from gaining that traction to help them be successful? Yeah, a lot of it is their emotions and their energy. Emotions are all the stories inside of us, right? So it's not just, well, I feel this today. It's so much deeper than that. It is, I'm not calling these leads or these people, I have this whole database full of people. I'm not calling them. It's like, okay, well, why aren't you calling them? Well, because I have so many other things on my plate. I just don't have time. It's like, okay, well, that's a bigger problem. The bigger problem is you're choosing what to put on your plate each day. And what you're choosing are things that are pulling you away from the one thing you don't want to do, which is talk to people. So if you don't want to talk to people, but you do want to build your business, then how are you going to do it? And so again, it's kind of backtracking. It's going from the problem and saying, let's keep working our way back until we get to a root. When we get to a root, we can pull it up and out. And so the root is usually, and this goes back to what I was saying before about realtors at the bar at the conferences, right? Is that there's some sort of internal childhood story around it. And I've heard everything. I've heard a lot of perfectionism from parents. If you don't bring me home an A, it's not good enough. And then there's this fear. If I don't bring this person my A, then they won't want anything to do with me. And this guy over here, that top agent leading this big team, he's the A. I'm not the A. I shouldn't even bother. That's what's going on in the subconscious. They're not aware of that. It's just what's going on in the subconscious. Consciously, what's happening is you're putting all the other blocks in front of their schedule so they just don't have time to even bother making the call. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I catch myself doing this sometimes. I catch myself doing the busy work that I know actually does things and checks off boxes, but it actually doesn't move my initiative or the thing that I'm trying to do forward. How would you suggest if I've identified that, if I'm sitting in that shoes saying that I had to bring home that A or whatever it is, how I overcome that then? A lot of overcoming it is just the awareness of it. And I mean, there's a lot of things that you people do. I mean, I've seen people try even things like hypnosis, right? To try and rewire the beliefs. And there's nothing wrong with that. That works, right? But the thing is, is that just having awareness of it and then catching yourself in it. If you can catch yourself in it and say, oh, this is that story. And as soon as you recognize it as a story, you get to tell yourself a different one. What is the truth here? That's why I highlighted what you were saying earlier around just emailing a bunch of people and getting people all across the country is because I think sometimes we think about ourselves bringing home the A to a client and not calling them because we want to bring home that A. But when we recognize it is a story, and if you bring back a C to that client, then there's a thousand more that you can go bring an A to. So it's really not defeating yourself over a small defeat and thinking about it in the bigger picture. And the thing is, too, is looking at it and saying, is it really a defeat? Even if a client says no, is it a defeat? You got through a no. You did it. Bound to happen. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, and there's so many reasons for people to say no. And a lot of times it's just because they haven't even given you a chance. So it's like, okay. And you start to realize there's your story and there's their story. And your story is, 
hey, I'm just out here helping people. Some people are going to want my help. Some people won't. Some people aren't ready for my help. And that's okay. That's their story. And so you tap into their story. And that's what I did when I was calling the for sale by owners and they'd hang up on me. And I'd call them back. I'd find out what's your story. I wouldn't take it personally, but not in the sense of I'm not any kind of a person who's like cold or unfeeling. Like I can't, I'm like the deepest emotional person you could imagine. I cry all the time, like all the time. It's like Jude Law on that holiday movie. You know, he's like, I'm a huge weeper. So it's like, I can't just have that person say no and not feel anything. But I thought, okay, what's the story here? I'm going to play with this. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to realize that if they say no, they're not telling me no. They're telling them no. They're telling themselves no. They're saying, I'm not ready for help. I don't want any help. And then I'm calling back and I'm asking why. Why don't you want any help? Are you sure you're not ready for any help? What's going on? What's preventing you from getting help? And then they tell me everything. And it's like, that's awesome. But it's creating a new story. It's seeing the story for what it is, seeing the story for other people. This works in everything. It's not just cold calls. It works with relationships. It works with parent children. It works with everything. It's what is that person's story? Because then there could be all sorts of stories around them. And you start to realize, oh, this has nothing to do with me. They're not mad at me. They didn't just yell at me. I didn't do anything wrong wow, they're just hurting or they're upset or this is going on or they're stressed about that. We always think it's us. (laughs) That's one of the things I'm going to take away from this conversation the most is they're not telling me no, they're telling themselves no. I want to ask you a semi-personal question that I've heard you talk about on other podcasts is you found yourself in a situation with two children on the floor crying about a situation and you were able to pick yourself back up out of that and create the life that you have today. Going through 2020, I felt like a lot of people were in that. And then in 2021, we were in the clear. And now if you read the headlines, the inflation, the job cuts that are out there, et cetera, many people might be finding themselves in that spot, an unexpected spot where they're in the gutters of wherever they are in life. If you feel comfortable telling the story, tell the story, but talk us through how you were able to pick yourself out of your moment to go be successful as you are today. Thank you. Yeah, no, I love this because everybody finds themselves in some version of this situation, right? And so for me, it was like, I was a single mom, okay? So I had been married for a long time. We were together for 13 years. We had a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And my now ex-husband, we were in counseling because we were having trouble. So our counselor diagnosed him as bipolar. And she said, you are textbook bipolar. Like we got to deal with this. And he got up and said, you're trying to ruin my marriage and walked out and refused to ever go back to counseling. To this day, he has never done a thing to help himself with his bipolar disorder. And so I realized, and this is something that the counselor told me, she's like, you have to make a choice. You're either going to leave. He's going to make it really hard for you because he doesn't believe he has this problem. He's going to blame it all on you. Are you going to be strong enough to walk away? Or are you going to stick with him and allow this to continue? And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm going to leave. And so I did. And it was really, really hard. And then a whole real estate market tanked. (laughs) And I was like, all my clients are real estate agents. What am I going to do? And it was just like, in that moment, I was thinking, I don't know what to do. Like I'd never done anything but real estate my entire adult life. I skipped college. 
There was like nothing. And I'm going, what do I do if I can't do real estate? What now? And I was like, just a wreck. I couldn't pay the bills. I couldn't keep a roof over our heads. There were times when we would have to pick up and move because I couldn't afford to pay the full month's rent when it was due, but I could pay a proration on a next place. And it, it was cheaper to just get my stuff and leave. I mean, that was really hard. And I did that like repeatedly. And it was like ridiculous the point that I was at. And I thought, I got to do something. I have to change something. I can't be this anymore. And I was literally like on the floor of the shower, just crying because I didn't want to hear my kids to hear. So I was like, I got to do something. And I decided I was going to fully surrender to the moment, just fully surrender to what was happening. And I think the point was, is that the reason it was so difficult at that point was because I was trying to hang on to something that was trying to get me to let go. Sometimes it's like there's something in our life that's meant to leave and we're clinging on for dear life. Like, no, I can't handle change. (laughs) No, don't take this away from me. It's all I have. And then it happens anyway. And then the tighter you've been holding on, the worse it is, by the way. (laughs) And so when it all falls apart, then you have to just surrender to it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree in counseling because I love coaching people, really do. I'm going to get a degree in counseling. And then I'm just going to get some brain dead job that I can do with my eyes closed so I can pay the bills and keep a roof over our heads. And I'm going to get a degree. And that was my plan. Okay. So I got a job as a leasing consultant at an apartment community. And I got there. I rolled in college, never went to a class. This is a very short story. First day I was there, I met my now husband and he had two kids also. And he had been a maintenance manager when he was 20. And that's a really funny story that I won't go into right now for time. But (laughs) he was a maintenance manager in an apartment community when he was 20. And he had worked his way up to being a superintendent of a massive construction company. And he got laid off when the real estate market tanked. And so he went back into a job as a maintenance manager so he could support his kids and took a massive pay cut. So we were kind of both in the same boat. And we met on the first day. And three weeks later, we had gotten an apartment there, moved all four kids in together, his two, my two, my dog, his dog. And we're in this three-bedroom apartment. And I'm thinking, oh my God, it was very tight. But I'm thinking, oh my God, like my life changed like instantly. It was like I surrendered and then like magic happened. Like that was crazy. And it was so funny because right then we realized we couldn't both work there and be in a relationship because like the company didn't allow that. So he made more as a maintenance manager than I did as a leasing consultant. So I'm like, I'll look for another job. This I found this and I've only been here a few weeks, so I'll leave. And so I was looking for another job and I had a vendor person that I'd known that ran a virtual tour company and lived in France. And he called me, he said, Hey, what you doing? And I'm like, not much. What's going on with you? Like this rando guy that I knew for years calls me from France. He goes, so real estate's dead in the US, right? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And he's like, so why don't you come run business development for me? It'll only take you a few hours a week. I'll pay you like 60K, okay? I'm like, okay. He's like, you want to move to New York? I was like, no. He goes, okay, you can work from home like that, instant. And I'm like, okay. All of a sudden I was making more than my maintenance manager boyfriend. 
And then I'm thinking, well, that was easy. And then my next thing on my list was we needed a house. So we were like looking for houses and stuff like that. And we were not in any position to buy, like credit was wrecked. It was funny. My dad called me and he said, Hey, so I need you to help me sell this house. And I'm like, what house? And he goes, the one I have in Winter Park. I said, the one that's five minutes from me is five bedrooms, three bathrooms and has the at-home office. He goes, yeah. He goes, can you sell it for me? I said, can I have it? He goes, sure, pay the mortgage. I'm like, how much is the mortgage? He goes, $800. I was like, sold. Literally drove up and handed me the keys the next day. The house was a wreck. It needed to be fixed up. And guess what? I had this great boyfriend now I was moving in with that knew how to do all that stuff. And so we fixed up the house and we lived in it, sold it like four years later. It was great. (laughs) Yeah. So we got married and we had a baby and we lived happily ever after. The four kids are now grown up. So we have an eight-year-old. I think what I'm getting from that story too, though, is surrender to the moment and understand that the work you did up to that point will carry you forward. You just have to give it time. Continue to do the things that you need to do. For you, it was getting a leasing role, keeping your connections and all that sort of stuff. But it will pan out as long as you surrender to the moment, accept it and keep moving forward. Yeah. You know what the thing was? Yes, absolutely. But I'll tell you that also, it's very important to understand that when something is pulling away from you, that it's okay to let go, that the right thing will show up and that all you need to do is to allow it to happen. And that is so hard. It's like standing on the edge of a cliff. You know that scene from Indiana Jones, the third one with Sean Connery? And it's like, he has to step off the cliff with faith. And then there's like that stone ledge that he couldn't see. It's that, that is what you're doing. And it is scary as can be. It really is. But when you do it, you realize that the stone path is there. It's really there. And you have to believe in that and you have to make that jump because the thing is leaving because something new is trying to come in. And in my case, it was a whole new life. And having that money come in from that business development role that I took on, and I worked with them for like three years. I helped them create their entire branding for their whole company. It was awesome. I loved what I did, but it only took me a few hours a week. I was free to coach and keep working on building my clientele and not have to worry that if I only have one or two clients because the market was crazy, it worked. And so it's letting go, stop resisting change. There's something new that's coming up for you. Allow it to show up. That's awesome. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we have to now transition into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Just jump right into it. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh gosh, I read a lot of books, a whole lot of books. One that I really, really like that I've read recently is by Vishen Lakhiani. It's called The Buddha and the Badass. And it's a great book that shifts the paradigm on what it means to be a leader and to really run a company or run a team And it's fantastic in the way he presents it. And he talks about how he built Mind Valley. So if you're familiar with Mind Valley, big company growing by leaps and bounds and branching out into lots of different divisions now. And he talks about how he built it basically from nothing and from being in that surrender moment and having to shift. So it brings up a lot of the same stuff that I talked about today into the space of owning like an eight-figure company. It's really amazing. I love it. I have to check it out. I haven't heard of it. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah. 
Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things that you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? One of the most important things that I do is ground myself in my body every single day. Part of that is kind of through meditation, but just imagining an anchor coming from the center of your body down into the ground and just allowing anything that's in your body that's tense or tight or whatever, just imagining it draining down this like cord into the earth. And it really puts you know, into a space of being present in the moment and centered and just balanced where you feel like, okay, I can do this today, no matter what it is. Do you stand or sit when you do that? I've done both. And actually, sometimes I do it in the shower just because it's like, I don't know, there's something about being in the water that I think is very conducive to meditation. (laughs) Interesting. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I got to tell you, I tend to break a lot of rules. As I've mentioned, can I give you some anti-advice? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You started off with cookies on an ice cream show. So I guess we can go anti-advice. Okay, cool. I'm going to break all your rules too. (laughs) So this is important because it goes back to those childhood stories, right? And so our parents' generation, they felt that being strong meant not showing any emotion, not sharing anything of yourself. And as I mentioned, I am a real weeper, right? I cry all the time, very emotional. I'm very proud of that because the thing is, is that I learned when I was a kid, because this is the advice my mother gave me, okay? Was she said, I'm strong because I never cry and you're weak because you cry all the time. And if you want to be strong like me, you have to stop feeling all those things. And that was her advice to me. And I thought, well, I don't think I can do that. (laughs) That's not going to work out for me. And I realized that the reason why was because the reason I cried all the time was because I wanted to feel my emotion so I could move through it quickly and be on the other side of it. And my mother would bottle up everything. And then she'd blow like a volcano if you like said the smallest thing. And I was like, I don't want to be like that. And I also just seeing her and how she operated throughout her life, and she's in her 70s now, that it was like a lot of stuff now is starting to come up for her that she's having to work through that I haven't had to do because I've worked through my emotions as they've shown up. So I'll say the anti-advice that I had has turned into what I would say is allow yourself to feel your emotions, allow yourself to move through them. And don't let anybody tell you that you're weak because you're emotional. It's your biggest strength. It's so interesting how that generation and our generation are just completely different with the way they process things and the things that don't work. I mean, we'll have a conversation after we're done here. Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? There's a lot of things that I could tell you, but I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is that my two kids that I had pre current husband because we have five now all together because he has two and then we had one together. So we have five, but my two, now that they're grown and they're adults and they're on their own and they're independent, I've had conversations with them about that time period and being so broken and having to move all the time and all of that. And I was never afraid to show my emotions in front of my kids to the point where if I was crying, I didn't want to hide. And that was kind of that decision I made in that shower moment because I was in there hiding. 
them to think anything was wrong. And I got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be honest with them. And so I would cry in front of them. They would ask me questions, you know, why are you crying? Is everything okay? I'm like, you know what? It's not okay right now, but it's going to be. And here's why. And then I would tell them things, right? And it would help me feel better. And then they learned, and I didn't know this then, but I do now because they've told me, is they've said that I set such a strong example for them that they could get through anything. It didn't matter what it was. And that we always had each other and that I was doing everything that I was doing and I was doing it all alone because I had no help. And they said that they saw that and they saw that strength and it made them realize that they didn't ever have to be afraid of anything. And I just think, God, like I did that. I didn't know I did that. I didn't intend to do that, but that's cool. (laughs) That's really cool. So it's like my youngest one of those two, she's about to turn 20 and she's been on her own for a year. She does really well for herself and she already has a coaching certification and she's already got passive income streams and she just bought a brand new Bronco. <laughs> like She's doing really well for herself and it's amazing. And I think, God, like I made that kid. So I think that's, I'm most proud of the job that I did with my kids when I was at my most broken. Yeah. And they're always watching. Always. Oh my gosh. Always watching. (laughs) Well, our fifth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know what? I think I'm going to go with my great grandmother. It's interesting. So I found an old picture of her in my grandmother's attic when I was 25. So she was four foot 11 and her husband was six, four. You know, those old pictures, like the Edwardian style outfits. And so that's her time period. So she had the Gibson girl hairdo and the Edwardian dress and all of that. They had to like really pose for those pictures, which is why most people are not smiling in their pictures at all. It would take a long time to take the picture. And so there's this picture and her husband's standing behind her. She's in front of him, tiny little thing. And he's holding her arms behind her back and she's got her head tilted and her tongue sticking out like that. And I thought, oh, so sassy. Yes. And she lived to be 102 and she died when I was nine. She didn't get married for a long time. She like broke some rules on that. And so she didn't get married until she was in her mid thirties. She was a concert pianist. So she was a working woman back then, which was like not okay. She lived through so much. She kept a running diary of literally every dime she ever spent. Like my grandmother showed me these books and books and it was like shoes, $2 or something. It was like she wrote everything down and it was insane. And she kept like every letter and she moved here. So Henry Flagler, who founded the city of Miami, built the railroad that failed to Key West, everything. That was her cousin. And so she was from Saginaw, Michigan, and then moved down to Tampa when Henry Flagler came down here. So that's how long my family's been in Florida. It's like three generations now. (laughs) Well, I'm three generations. My kids are four. So it was like to think of everything that she experienced and the fact that she invested in GE before it was a thing. Like she had tons of money when she died. And it was because of everything she did. Like she was just really smart She was a great investor and she really lived her life. And I would love to sit down and talk to her. That'd be awesome. That's awesome. I think Henry Flagler was the one that invested in Rockefeller. Yes. And they founded Standard Oil together. Absolutely. 
He's an underappreciated, underknown person in business history that I don't think a lot of people talk about. Yeah. And he was actually pretty big into real estate investing and architecture as well. He's all over the place in Florida. (laughs) Angela, fantastic conversation. I wish we had another hour more so I could throw you some of my weaknesses that you could help me work through. But if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you or get a free consulting session with you, where is the best place we can point them? Yeah, go to AngelaKristenTaylor.com or if that's too long, just type in ProductiveFlow.com and it will take you there. Perfect. We will link all that in the show notes. And then Angela, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. 